Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to all of you watching online on our website, Facebook page, a YouTube channel. We're glad you're able to continue to join us this way. And all of you in the room, good to see your faces. Welcome to church on Sunday nights. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Hey, uh, we've begun a little series uh, last week called Kingdom People, and uh, it, it, it kind of covers some questions that you might think are uh, maybe common knowledge, like shouldn't we all just sort of know these terms, or uh, maybe if you're newer to kind of church, maybe during this uh, quarantine time, you're like, yeah, maybe I should just tune in and get some uh, encouraging messages or whatever. Uh, maybe you've come across some of these words, uh, words like salvation, or even a word like the church, or last week, Jesus, and, we, and, and maybe we think we all are supposed to know everything about this, and don't we already understand this? But sometimes it's when we go back to the building blocks, back to the basics, that we actually discover that maybe we've had too narrow a review. Maybe we need to reframe and understand. And so last week, Pastor Jason did a phenomenal job tackling the question, who is Jesus? And talked about Jesus as the sovereign and saving son of God. And how in light of that, the gospel is not primarily a message about a transaction that you can make with God. But the gospel is a good news announcement. It's good news that God has come for us. I think that's worth another amen just right at the start tonight, don't you think? To say that it's good news that God himself came. And then not just in that Old, Old Testament Hebrew sense that it's good news God has come to his people. But in that kind of Roman sense, they use that phrase good news to talk about a king who had won a great victory. And so when we understand that right off the bat, the early Christians were not thinking about Christianity, quote unquote, as if they were founders of a new religion. They did not set out to create a new religious system. They weren't trying to create a new set of rituals. They certainly weren't trying to advise or construct a new set of rules of behavior. For many of us, 2,000 years later, here we are, and if I said the word Christianity to you, you'd say, oh, it's all those people who have funny rules about morality and about you know, what you should and shouldn't do and how you should. It's just, it's people who got a bunch of rules, right? You say, well, no. And the early Christians certainly would have said, no. They weren't trying to launch a new ethical code, though the gospel comes with ethics. They weren't trying to launch a new sort of personal piety, though there is a personal dimension to this. And so tonight, we're going to follow up from last week, who is Jesus? And we're going to wrestle with the question, what is salvation? What actually is this? We, you know, sometimes you'll see a sticker that says, have you been saved? And maybe if you're in a more kind of honorary or cynical mood, you say, saved from what? Or Jesus saves. I saw some, uh, you, you'll discover some interesting memes or jokes if you Google, what does it mean to say Jesus saves? Uh, there was a soccer a joke in there somewhere about a goalkeeper. There was another joke about a duel between the devil and Jesus working on a Word document and then the power went out or the computer crashed and the devil was all upset and Jesus was smiling because Jesus saves. Super lame. Super lame. You've heard the, the saying, no doubt, that if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. If you think one idea of salvation is this, then every problem starts to look like 
the thing that fits your solution. And so for a lot of us, maybe you grew up hearing this in church, the hammer is, or the answer of salvation is, well, Jesus saves individuals. Jesus saves individual souls. And so then whatever the problem is, you say, aha, boom, let's just apply that tool to it. This is the right tool. Now, a hammer can get a lot of stuff done, but it's not always the right tool for the job. And so if we just fix in our mind that salvation is Jesus saves individual souls, this is my hammer, every problem you encounter will be reconfigured to fit your predetermined solution. Let's give you some examples of this. You say, well, what should we do about injustice in the world? Boom, Jesus saves individual souls. What should we do about corporate greed? Boom, Jesus saves individual souls. What should we do about gun violence? Boom, Jesus saves individual souls. And you could name a problem. It all seems to fit. But that's not necessarily because we're using the right tool. It's just that we have a predetermined solution And so we retrofit the problem to match. Right off the bat, we're going to do some rethinking tonight. I also want us to consider that your idea of a solution depends on your definition of the problem. Your idea of a solution depends on your definition of a problem. And so if someone were to ask you, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, and you said, I've been saved I go, this is great. What have you been saved from? Um, hell, um, angry God, uh, death, destruction. There's a popular atheist meme that shows a gentle German Jesus with long blonde hair and blue eyes knocking on the door. And it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it says, what happens if we don't let you in, Jesus? Then I'm going to destroy you all and send you to hell. <laughs> like, tell me why I should let you in again. Is how the, you know. How do you answer that question? What does Jesus exactly save us from? I want to present to you a couple of ways of how we approach the problem. We think the problem is bad behavior, and so then we think the solution is personal forgiveness. We think the problem is a wicked society. Oh, what a terrible world. And so the solution we imagine, salvation, is an escape to heaven. We think the problem is a fallen creation. Stuff that doesn't work right. There's viruses, there's diseases, there's storms. And so the solution must be for everything to just burn already. This is how we leave that chart up there and you can just ponder that for a moment. Now maybe you're looking at that and you're like, well, I mean, Glenn, isn't some of those things true? Yes. Isn't there personal forgiveness as part of what happens in God's saving work? Yes. Isn't there a heaven? Yes. Isn't there a sense in which The world as we know it will come to a kind of end. Yes, it's kind of true, but just true enough to keep us from seeing something more beautiful than that. Any music lovers in the room? What if you went and listened to a beautiful symphony, let's say a Tchaikovsky symphony or something, and you're listening to it, and your friend says, what is it you love about Tchaikovsky? And you say, well, I'll tell you, it's because it goes from the one, and then as an interval of the third, and then it goes down to a seventh, and then it goes up a fifth, and your friends, I have no idea why you love this music, because you just reduced a symphony to a series of mathematical intervals. Or if I said to you, if you came back from seeing a great piece of art in a museum, and I said, what was so captivating about Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son? And you say, wait, 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 wait. Instead of showing it to you, let me just pull out my Etch-a-Sketch here. So wait, that, that, no, we can't do it justice. 
Or let's try another metaphor. The Mona Lisa. I've been fortunate enough to be able to see it in the Louvre in Paris. When you look at the Mona Lisa, what's the most legendary part of the Mona Lisa? What people say? Come on, you can talk to me. Her smile. Now, what if some museum curator took over the Louvre and decided that they were going to be very clever about things. And they said, well, we all know that all that anyone wants to see about the Mona Lisa is her smile. And so we're going to reframe it and we're going to crop everything else off with our mat and our, we're going to put like the most elaborate frame until all you can see is her smile. <laughs> You'd say, well, that, that's kind of a strange decision. And you're like, I know, but this is all that anybody really cares about. It's her smile. So just, that's all we need to see. Lips. Like, well, that's, that you're missing the beauty of it. This is what I'd like to suggest to you tonight. It's not that forgiveness and heaven and judgment are not actually part of the story. It's just that we've cropped out so much, we're missing the beauty of it. It's just that we've blocked out so much else that we, we've forgotten just how grand and how breathtaking salvation really is. If it's true that your idea of, this, of, the prob- of the solution depends on your definition of the problem, then it's worth looking at how the Bible retells the problem. Genesis 3 through 11, and we'll do just a quick little whirlwind tour here. Genesis 3 through 11, when sin enters the world, these first few chapters of Genesis begin to show us how everything that God joined together in creation gets pulled apart. Genesis 3, you see the man and the woman that God had joined together now start to blame one another. You see humanity and God, who were meant to enjoy union and communion with each other, human beings are now hiding from God. Don't have to go much longer. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, brothers, now one murdering the other because of jealousy competition. You keep going in these first few chapters of Genesis, you see the the ground itself give way and the floodwaters of the deep break open. And now you're like, wow, this world that was meant to cooperate with human rule is now revolting against human rule. It becomes an instrument of God's judgment. The Tower of Babel story where human societies bond together to do something except they're uniting in a way to live apart from God. And God says, let's go ahead and divide this. Genesis 3 through 11 says, the problem with sin in the world is sin tears apart what God joined together. Everything that God had created good and complete gets ripped and fractured. And in a short, simple way, we could say salvation is God putting it all back together again. Salvation is God putting things back together again. But I want to give us one complex, sort of complex sentence that we'll break down tonight. Are you ready? Salvation is God working within his world to rescue, redeem, and renew all things. Salvation is God working within his world to rescue, redeem, and renew all things. Now let's take this a phrase at a time. God working within his world. John 3, 16 is maybe the most well-known scripture in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But now listen to verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God is working within the world. The first thing I want you to notice about this phrase is the word working. 
Don't we sometimes think of salvation as like past tense, like, well, didn't that already happen? But actually, when you read the New Testament carefully, it describes salvation as something that has happened, something that is happening, we are being saved, and something that is yet to happen. Paul says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And if you're very kind of rigid about these things, you'll be very confused. He said, which one is it? Have I been saved or not? And the answer is yes, we've been saved once. Maybe a, a simple way to think of it, saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin, and one day yet to be saved from the very presence of sin. God working, but then here's the second half of this phrase, within his world. We often think that the Bible's story to us begins with Genesis 3. Where if someone says, oh, don't you, why do you read all that Bible stuff? Isn't it just about making you feel guilty and stuff? Actually, the opening words of scripture are God's look, God looking at the world he's made and saying, it is good. I like it. Now, what kind of a God would say it is good? And then when everything falls apart, as he knew it would, says, yeah, I'm done with this thing. I don't want it. Get, get it out of here. I don't want it. What kind of a God would do that? You're like, well, glad. Hey, hang on, hang on. I know a little bit about the Bible. I mean, isn't that exactly what happened with Noah and the flood story? No, actually, it's not. The most remarkable thing about the flood story is not that there was a flood, but the extraordinary lengths that God went to to preserve his original creation. Think about that. That old childhood story of the animals two by two, what's the whole point of that? So that they could continue multiplying so that original creation could be preserved. You know, there was a secular version of a flood story, a kind of a, sorry, a pagan version of this flood story. And in the pagan version, it's God number two in this hierarchy of the heavens that finds out about the God's plan and says to the human beings, hey, you better, this God's going to destroy it. Here's how, and he kind of leaks the plan so that, the, that they can build a, a boat and survive. But in the Genesis story, it's different, isn't it? In the Genesis story, God himself says, I have to deal with evil, but I will never deal with evil without also delivering my people. And so right away, right away in Genesis, we see that God always works from within. This is why God calls Abraham. The whole Genesis story slows down when we get to Genesis 12. Have you ever wondered why does the story come to this slow, slow moment? We've been cruising through stuff, and all of a sudden, Abraham, 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 why? Because God's determined to rescue his world from within it. God launched his salvation project. He didn't send angels. He didn't drop tracks. He didn't airdrop some information. He decided to call the son of an idol maker named Abram. And he said, get out of your father's house. We're launching a rescue mission. We're launching a project. God working within his world. The prophet Ezekiel said, one day God's had enough of these oppressive kings who are exploiting their people. One day God is going to come and be king himself. Jason talked about this last week. And so when you get to Jesus, this is, how, this is what, what sometimes we miss as, as Christians is we tend to think that when Jesus showed up, it was like, oh, plan B. As if it was like, well, God tried all these other things, and finally he said, okay, uh, what should we do? Okay, I'll go. And look, God working from within was always his MO. It was always his plan. The incarnation is not a break from God's character. It's the fulfillment of his character. 
That's always what God has done. Why would we expect anything other than that God himself would come into the world he made? He's always worked from within. And in fact, this is what we instinctively want. You know, we've got four kids, and uh, our youngest is eight. And Jane, very often at various points, multiple points throughout the day, will say, Mom, come here. (laughs) Or Dad, come here. Like, what is it, Jane? What do you need? You know what's coming next, right? Just come here. (laughs) Can you tell me what you need, honey? Come here. (laughs) Like, okay, okay, yeah, what? What is it, honey? This is our instinct. God, help. And he doesn't go, what? What do you need? I gave you some commandments and stuff. God, help. We're stuck. Sin is tearing this world apart. He's like, okay, yeah. What do you need? God coming within. God working within his world. The next part of the phrase, to rescue. To rescue. Romans 6, verse 18 through 23 Paul says, now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking here with ordinary metaphors because of your limitations. Thank you, Paul. Once you offered the parts of your body to be used as slaves to impurity and to lawless behavior that leads to still more lawless behavior, and now you should present the parts of your body as slaves to righteousness. Look, there's a whole lot in here where he starts to use slavery language. What's Paul referencing? He's referencing the greatest event in Israel's history the Exodus, when they were slaves in Egypt and then were set free. You remember why, what Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship. Do you know that the Hebrew word for serving and worshiping, servant and worshiper are related overlapping words? In other words, Paul knows from reading the Exodus story that you were once a slave to sin, but you've been set free so that you can be now a slave to God and a slave to righteousness, a worshiper of God. Maybe part of our struggle with catching the power of rescue is we don't get that sin is not just bad behavior. Sin in the Bible is actually a power. It's a power that we are under. It's a force in itself. And so God rescues us from the captivity towards this power called sin. And then the next phrase, redeem. To rescue, to redeem. What what does this word redeem mean? I mean, think about, you know, you got a voucher, you got to go redeem this voucher, you got a gift certificate, I need to redeem that. What, what, What does this word mean? Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And he redeemed us so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. There's a whole thing Paul's referencing here. The whole story of working with Abraham is going to come to fulfillment now. Would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. And that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Uh, In the Old Testament, a person would find themselves in trouble, often because they were in debt. And then they ended up becoming a slave to someone else. And then they lost property. And so to redeem is to kind of claim, to to buy back, to return to its rightful place, to bring it back, to take it back to yourself. And now you can see how rescue and redemption kind of relate. We were slaves 
and we were stuck in the wrong spot. We were in this debt. And God says, not only am I going to rescue you, but I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to put you back in your rightful place. Think about that. This is why I can never say, brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I've been redeemed. I've been put back in. I've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. I'm a child of the most high God. That which was lost has now been returned. We've been redeemed. It's redemption, not just forgiveness. Too many of us, we struggle to pray. We struggle to want to talk to God. We struggle to want to think about God because we think God's got this ledger of all the bad stuff we've done, and he's just chosen to kind of not look at it, not think about it, but at any moment he could be, hey, you see that? I remember. Instead of understanding that it's more than just what we think of as forgiveness, like God saying, sure, fine, it's okay. It's rescue from the power of sin. It's redeemed. You've been relocated now from one kingdom to another. You are no longer what you once were. Friends, if you catch that, you pray differently. You wake up in the morning differently. In fact, They've, they've done studies that people's mental health is greatly affected by whether or not they spend time in prayer and meditation, but they actually discovered the one group of people for whom prayer is actually more harmful than beneficial is the group of people that's convinced that God is mad at them, that they're a disappointment. So if you're, if you're sitting here, you're watching, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't want to do any, have anything to do with God. It may be because it, you thought that the Christian story was a God who kind of decided to just, okay, I'll let it slide, but one more time. And maybe it's because you had a parent like that. We had a school teacher like that who kind of said, forgiveness was, sure, I'll ignore it, but one more and you're going to get it, boy. That's not what the scripture says. You've been set free from a power of sin. You've been redeemed relocated, purchased by God with his own blood. Come on, somebody. Redeemed. And then the next part of the phrase, to renew. To rescue, to redeem, to renew. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul starts to use this Interesting new creation language. He says, so then if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. There's lots of words we can use here to describe new creation. Sometimes we use the word restoration. God has restored us. And there is a sense in which, yeah, that's right. He puts us back. But it's actually more powerful than that, isn't it? It's the renewing of it. It's the making it complete and perfect and new. And if we miss this about salvation, this is where we get the the idea about, well, as long as my soul is saved and I'm going to heaven and not that other place that I really don't care about anything else, is we miss the power of God's heart. Years ago, when our kids were little, we read this little book called The Big Green Pocketbook. I don't know if any of you who have kids have read this story, but it's about a girl who spends her day with her mom, and she has this big sort of green pocketbook. It's really a purse. 
And as she goes through the day, she collects little things throughout the day. So they go to, uh, you know, the, the dry cleaner and then she gets a little mint or something, she puts it in her purse and she goes to the bank and the banker gives her a sticker and she puts it in there. And then they go to, uh, you know, the soda shop and she, and she puts everything in this big green purse and then she leaves the purse on the bus and, and as they get to their house, she's falling asleep on the bus and they arrive home and she gets out and she gets home. She says, mom, I've left my, you know, big green pocketbook on the bus. And the mom's like, well, you know, we, we, we've got some other things. You know, we've got some other purses. And she says, no, 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 I don't, I don't want another purse. Like, my whole day was in that big green pocketbook. My whole day was in that big green pocketbook. And so then the bus driver, a few minutes later, or an hour later, whatever, the bus driver pulls back around and realizes that she's left her purse and, and honks and, and says, here it is. And she gets it. And it's a great ending to the story. But every th- since the first time I read the story, I thought, this is a little bit like God and the new creation. Because think about the happiest moments in your life. Some of you are about to get married this weekend, AJ and Christy. Some of you, had, we just dedicated kids tonight. You've got graduations that you've had. We think about all the happiest moments. How does it feel to say, there was so much joy and so many memories made in this world, in this earth. But you're asking me to believe in a God who just wants to throw it all away? You know how many times I've sat with people who've lost a loved one and they're like, I just don't understand, Glenn. How is some faraway heavenly place with streets of gold and possibly chubby babies playing harps, <laughs> how is that supposed to make me feel better right now? What they feel is an amplified version of that girl saying, my whole day was in that purse. We look at this earth, we say, my, our whole life, our memories, our laughter, our home, our like, what? What do you mean God's saying, ah, just forget it all. Let's go over there to this other place in the clouds. But it isn't what the Bible says. That isn't what the scripture says. What it says to us is at, at the very end of it all, God will take this broken world Bring it through the fire of judgment so that it becomes new again, new creation. And everything good and joyful and full of love and peace and everything that we enjoyed here becomes completed and perfected in the new creation. God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing. God is not the artist that starts painting on one easel and then, he's, and then someone comes along, some vandal comes along and graffitis it and God says, darn it, and throws the canvas away and just moves on to another canvas. God is the artist who even when the devil tried to vandalize the grandeur of his creation said, okay, are you done? Now watch me work. Watch me work. God is the God who says, no matter what you do to destroy this thing, I will find a way to renew it in such a way that it becomes even better than it could have been before. Only God can do that. I'm here to tell you that salvation is not a private, personal transaction of getting your passport stamped from heaven so you can fly away to an ethereal other world and have total disconnection with this life. But salvation is God himself stepping into the good world that he made because he's a faithful creator and a powerful redeemer. And he's rescuing, redeeming, and renewing all things for his glory and for our good. That's what salvation is. And Paul says, even though that's coming... If you say yes to Jesus, 
It starts now. Paul says that's not just a future. If you say yes to Jesus, it's your present. It starts now. New creation now. And so the final phrase in our little theological sentence tonight is all things. God working within his world to rescue, redeem, and renew all things. The book of Revelation, verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 5. Earlier verses talk to us about the new creation, heaven and earth becoming one. And he says in verse five, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Pastor Jason said tonight in the offering that we worship because we reorient around a throne, around the reign of God. We're going to start a series in just a couple weeks in the book of Revelation, and it's amazing that the throne is mentioned in almost every chapter, almost every chapter. Why? Because if you're going to make it through a difficult present, it's because you've got to be aware of an eternal throne. And we reorient around it. And the one seated on the throne, the one seated on the throne doesn't say, I'm just mad and in a bad mood. What are we, what are we going to do? one seated on the throne says look I'm making all things new the invitation of the Lord to you tonight friends whether you're watching online or in the room here tonight the invitation is to let God start his work of salvation in you now and maybe you're watching this maybe you're here listening to this and you're like I just I don't know, I used to think that, now I'm not sure if I believe that, it just sounds so weird. But I tell you what, I do know that, that things are coming apart at the seams. And I do feel what you're describing, that something is tearing everything apart. Tonight, you can begin to welcome the one who saves, the one who rescues, redeems, renews, Maybe you're, you're saying, well, I've said yes to Jesus, but I still experience the power of sin at work in my life. It's the power of uh, pulling against me. Yes, that's true. In this present world, there is a darkness that is at war. And this is why it's important to know that salvation is not just, yeah, 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 I have been. It continues. It's ongoing. God's still saving us. Not, don't. Don't, don't confuse this with like, oh, is, are you saying I could lose my salvation? No, 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 no. I'm just saying you don't say yes to Jesus and then move on. The yes to Jesus is like the yes at a wedding. I mean, what if AJ and Christy do their wedding on Saturday and they both say I do and then they say, see you later, hon. What are you doing? No, what are you doing? No, you're supposed to be together now. What? And now you're going to build a life together. That's what this is. It, you may have already said your first yes to Jesus, but as every married couple in the room knows, every day is a yes. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Every day is a saying, God, keep saving me. Keep working within me to rescue, redeem, and renew all things. Would you stand with me tonight? There's no story that God can't redeem. There's no bondage that he can't rescue. There's no mess that he can't renew. And it doesn't take a lot of faith. Jesus said it takes mustard seed faith. 
weak and feeble, uh, God, I think I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's welcome him tonight. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Do some business with God in this moment. God, we welcome you. We need you to rescue. We need you to redeem. We need you to renew. We don't want to hide corners of our life from you. We don't want to just give you our afterlife to sort out. We want to give you our present moment, our todays, our tomorrows, our every part. So come, Holy Spirit. Come and work in us, Lord.